Hello and welcome to the Steal My Name podcast. I'm your host, Bob Barrow. It's episode 11 time. Uh, before I get into any of that, I want to thank you guys very much for uh, <laughs> those of you who checked it out, for coming along with me for that gigantic Phantasm episode. Uh, I You might not have been able to tell by the end of it, but I was exhausted myself. So I hope you enjoyed that. I know it was a lot of information, five movies plus DS9, plus the book. It was it was crazy. So after I did with Ninja Turtles, going to something calmer like The Searchers, I'm going to go back to one movie this time and just, just mellow everyone's palate a little bit. Because it's episode 11. We've passed 10. We're into a into a brave new world. Anything could happen now. I, I might go completely insane and turn the whole show into reviewing cookbooks or, or salt and pepper shakers. I, I work at Value Village, so I see all kinds of weird shit in there. I might start reviewing collector's plates because that's a fucking wacky world, the whole concept of collector's plates. If you're not familiar, if you're young, because I don't see them much anymore, I guess maybe they're still a thing. I don't know. It's not my world. I don't need another hobby. <laughs> Though I have to say, the concept of collecting uh, Star Trek collector's plates really appeals to me. So who knows? Episode 12 may be all about that. But no, I digress. Gonna go a little calmer, a little quieter this time. So for episode 11, I'm gonna be taking a look at Freddy versus Jason. Yes, Freddy versus Jason from 2003, directed by Ronnie Yu. And because I'm gonna, I always forget this. Let's get uh, out of the way right off the top with the synopsis. So according to IMDb, Freddy versus Jason, again directed by Ronnie Yu. Freddy Krueger and Jason Voorhees return to terrorize the teenage population. Except this time, they're out to get each other too. Yep, pretty on board. So, Freddy vs. Jason had a very long and winding road to get to the silver screen. It's probably one of the longest developed projects in the history of Hollywood. It took years and years and years for, for it to make it. As far back as 1987, New Line and Paramount were having talks about bringing these characters together because it's not a new concept. The idea of two iconic characters meeting up and taking a swing at each other. It's an old horror concept. It's until Marvel kind of opened up their universe and started crossing over characters. We hadn't really seen stuff like that on the big screen, even though that's inherently a comic book idea. So they ran with that there, but crossover movies or versus movies go all the way back to to Universal, beginning with Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. And then they did the monster rallies, the monster rumbles of House of Frankenstein and House of Dracula. Those characters would meet up again in Abbott and Costello meets Frankenstein, which had Frankenstein, the Wolfman, Dracula. God, the Godzilla franchise is also famous for this by bringing together Godzilla fought King Kong, crossing over Godzilla versus Mothra, and then that whole versus idea became kind of central to that franchise. Godzilla always had to fight somebody. And in the early days of Toho, usually they'd either spin the movie off of a Godzilla one, a villain he fought, or they'd bring existing villains from their monster universe into a Godzilla movie. So it's nothing new. But in 86-87, Paramount and New Line, who own the franchises, Paramount with Friday the 13th, and New Line with A Nightmare on Elm Street, they were having some talks because at that time, Friday the 13th and A Nightmare on Elm Street were the biggest franchises in horror. They were the biggest some of the biggest franchises in the world at this point. And obviously fans from the early days, as soon as A Nightmare on Elm Street hit, Robert England famously tells the story that kids would come up to him at shows and go, you think Freddy could kick Jason's ass? That's really where this kind of stuff starts, is kind of a, a schoolyard rivalry. You know, you've got people that love Freddy, people that love Jason. How would they kick each other's ass? But as often happens with Hollywood, Paramount wanted the rights to A Nightmare on Elm Street to do it, and New Line wanted the rights Friday the 13th to do it. So the project stalled. In the early 90s, Paramount was done with the Friday the 13th, after the uh, the low returns on Jason Takes Manhattan. So they sold the property to New Line. So now, Freddie and Jason were both under the same roof. So when Jason Goes to Hell ended with, that's Friday the 13th Part 9, for anyone that's not familiar, with Jason getting sucked down into hell, famously the camera pulls in on the mask, and Freddie's arm pops up out of the ground, grabs the mask with his claw, laughs, and drags it down into hell with him. 
So from that point on, there was real demand in the community because for the first time, the characters had actually crossed over. They had appeared on screen together, even though it wasn't Robert England. It was actually Kane Hodder wearing the Freddy glove. So he he's portrayed Jason, uh, Leatherface in Chainsaw 3, and a little bit of Freddy, at least in Armsworth. So all during this time, New Line was writing scripts. They were hiring different writers, taking pitches, because they had no real idea how to bring these guys together. With something like Frank or Frankenstein and the Wolfman, the Universal Monsters, while they don't, while they do inhabit the same universe, it's kind of easier to bring those together. You don't have really conflicting backstories. Frankenstein and the Wolfman both exist in the real world, so if you can have the Wolfman, you can have Frankenstein, and they can meet up and smack each other around for a little while. But Freddy and Jason are so diametrically opposed, not just in the kind of films that they inhabit, where Friday the 13th is very standard hack and slash, cutting up kids at camp, and Nightmare on Elm Street is very wild and visual and extravagant and over the top and has a rather complex mythology, but also where they do their work is so different. Jason exists in the real world. He's a solid thing that you can hack and stab and slash at, but Freddy operates completely in the world of dreams. So what do you do? How do you get them to fight when, if Jason's in the dream, he's completely at Freddy's whim, and if Freddy's in the real world, then he becomes just a person. Now, we know we can bring him into the real world. They did that in part one and part six. But how do you bring all this together? You're dealing with nine Friday the 13th films. You're dealing with six A Nightmare on Elm Street films, not including Wes Craven's New Nightmare, because that's more of a, a meta situation. So round and round, this, this project went in stuck in a literal development hell. The characters were trapped in hell, and the scripts were strapped, trapped in hell. Everybody wrote a script. Brandon Bragger from the Star Trek franchise. I think Mike Judge from King of the Hill even took a swing at it. And they started going in some pretty outlandish directions. Uh, if you're not familiar with the development, go online and do a read. They, they did so many weird things. Trying to combine the mythologies seemed to be the biggest sticking point. And a lot of these scripts went around and round on this kind of a thing. Overcomplicated resurrections, cults worshipping Freddy, Freddy actually having been at Camp Crystal Lake and sexually assaulting Jason. All these weird fucked up things that just never quite work because you're trying to alter the franchises, right? You're not leaving them as the established things that we know and love because that's really what we want. We want Jason as we know him, we want Freddy as we know him, and we want to bring them together and have them duke it out. It seems simple, but it was an incredibly arduous process. Until finally they brought in a couple of very young writers, Damian Shannon and Mark Swift, and their whole idea was, look, we're not going to use anything from your older scripts. Everything is too complicated. We're going to keep the mythology as it stands. Freddy's Freddy and Jason is Jason. And how can we get them to, to duke it out with each other? So that brings us to the version of the script that we now have. The version of Freddy versus Jason that we know. So that script was written, and we'll get into the nuts and bolts of the movie here in a second. And now it came time for them to find a director. Obviously, they went out to Wes Craven. He said no, thought the idea was was quite trite. And round and round, interviewed tons and tons of people, and eventually settled on Ronnie Yu. Not the most orthodox choice, but he had just had great success reviving the Child's Play series for Universal. It was at MGM still. Might still be MGM, but I think it's Universal at that point owned it with Bride of Chucky, which completely relit that franchise. Bride of Chucky's a fucking awesome movie. So we now have Ronnie Yu, we now have the script. It was foregone conclusion that Robert England would return, but one of the biggest sticking points with this development, with the film, and something that still bothers a lot of fans, is what happened with Jason. Now, 
there have been several actors that have played Jason over the course of the franchise from one to six. But starting with part seven up until Jason X, so for four films, he was played by Kane Hodder. Now, I know everyone has their favorite Jason, but Kane Hodder is definitely mine. He brought a a menace and a visceral sense to Jason with that heavy breathing and this kind of shark-like attitude where there was no doubt that Jason was evil, he was a bad guy, and he was on a mission. He was focused on what he was doing, not just some kind of lumbering brute. And Kane Hodder had also been a big champion of Freddy versus Jason. He did press about it. He talked about it at conventions and Fango and all these different outlets and had really been championing it and had been involved through all of these scripts. And it was just like Robert England. Everyone just assumed that he was going to play the role again. But as development started, now this turned into kind of a game of he said, she said, it's their fault. It's their fault. It's someone else's fault. Kane Hodder was unfortunately recast. I think it was a mistake. No one's ever really given a reason. The main reason that some that the studios kind of stood behind is they wanted somebody that was bigger, much bigger than Robert England to kind of show just how more physically threatening Jason is. I think that's crap. Uh, Kane Hodder is a big fucking guy. If you want to make him a little bigger, just put him in some lifts. Like it's not hard to accomplish. Personally, now this is just in my own opinion, I think what it came down to is Kane Hodder has had a history of being very protective and possessive of the character, and he's had a history of telling the studio no about things that they should do. He, We have him to thank that Jason doesn't talk. We have him to thank for really taking ownership of Jason and keeping a through line in his performance. And I know a lot of people are like, eh, it's just somebody in a mask. Absolutely not. You can look at some of the masked villains and see what happens when they just stick somebody in the mask without thinking it through. I could point at some of the uh, Halloween series as a perfect example of that. Kane Hodder's Jason was a fully realized functioning character with mannerisms and ticks and emotions and ups and downs, peaks and valleys. He was fully realized. And by recasting him, I think the movie did lose a bit of its oomph. It's still a great movie, but I don't think the portrayal of Jason is as great as it could be. So instead, they brought in a man named Ken Kurzinger, and he did the best with what he had. Absolutely no doubt. When he gets up to speed, he's very brutal as Jason. A bit more of a throwback to kind of a lumbering hillbilly style in the early films. He did have a history with the character. He had actually doubled Kane Hodder in a couple of scenes in Jason Takes Manhattan for some of the more dangerous stunts. And we actually see him without uh, out of the makeup in part eight. He's the diner uh, cook or owner, whoever that Jason throws up into the mirror. So he did have some history with the character. So at least that's a plus. Now, before we get into the film, I'm going to keep rambling because this is my show and this is the primary reason I picked this movie because I have stories to tell. I have a long history with Freddy vs. Jason. It kind of came out at the perfect time for me. I was, I just graduated high school in the summer of the spring of 2003. I was 18 and I was hardcore into horror. The last three, four years of my life had been really dedicated to collecting and studying and learning. I was lucky enough. I got so many franchises had come back for another round. Uh, I got to see Jason X on the big screen, Halloween Resurrection on the big screen, even though it sucked, it was still great to see Michael Myers in theaters And horror was undergoing kind of a great renaissance at that point. Uh, We'd had the early remakes were hitting, but they were still good. Uh, Friday the 13th, sorry, Texas Chainsaw Massacre and the Hills Have Eyes. We'd had movies like Frailty and Cabin Fever and Dog Soldiers. Uh, The French New Wave stuff or the French New Extremity was starting. There was so much great horror happening. And we knew as a community that Freddy vs. Jason was finally coming. It was going to happen. The magazines were talking about it. And actually, the very first issue of Rue Morgue I ever bought uh, had a article about Freddy vs. Jason. Because I remember being in the store. I was picking up my Fangoria that day or that week. Or month, I should say. It's a monthly. 
And I saw Rue Morgan there, but I believe the cover was about Ray Bradbury, if I'm not mistaken. And I didn't at that time have any real affinity with Bradbury, but I saw one of the little bylines on the cover was Freddy versus Jason. So I was like, fuck yeah, I'm buying this. Fangoria did an entire magazine dedicated to it with interviews and articles and pictures. It was just fucking amazing. So in the week leading up to this, in the week leading up to actually the midnight showing, my friend Jeff Pearson and I had spent the entire week watching all of the Friday the 13th movies, just sitting in my room, one after another, day after day, plowing through all these movies. And then we were doing a marathon of A Nightmare on Elm Street, plowing through all this. It's a, uh, a sunny uh, afternoon, and it's the day, the Thursday, that we're supposed to be going that night to the midnight screening. We are so excited. Like, we couldn't be any more fired up for this movie. And it's the final scene of Freddy's Dead, where they pull them into the real world and they're beating them up with all the different tools and toys and the, the whatever. It's a dumb movie, but I love it. And final scenes going on, and the TV flickers once, flickers twice, and shuts off. We're like, what the fuck? It's a beautiful day outside. How has the power gone out? So we walk downstairs and kind of everything out. Okay, so we didn't blow a fuse. Power's out in the whole house. We look outside. And people are stepping out onto their front porches, looking down the street. What's going on? I don't know if everybody remembers. If you're a younger listener, you might not remember this. But that day was the big blackout. Yes, the blackout that shut down most of southern Ontario and a good chunk of the the northern United States. So we proceed to spend the rest of that day trying to figure out what the hell's going on. Now, that was just, it was a serious couple of hours, because you have to remember we're only two years removed from 9-11, so the world is still a tense place. It's even more fucked up now, but it was tense at that point. So we actually, to find out what's going on, we had to, with no driver's licenses or anything, get into my dad's van and start it so we could turn on the radio and listen for some updates and kind of stare at the sky, because no one really knew what was going on. It was just the power was out everywhere. That's all anybody really knew. So the, the radio is running on generators, and we're all at, like staring at the sky looking for fighter jets or whatever. My girlfriend at the time, Jen Lewis, she eventually came over, and we just went walking around the neighborhood. And at this point, it had been a few hours, and the word was power's not coming back on for a while. So we're wandering around the neighborhood. Stores are opening their doors, giving away stuff that would be perishable. I uh, worked at the Dairy Queen on Shimong Road at that time, and the uh, the jerk that owned it refused to give anything away and lost his entire stock because it all melted. Eat a dick. They fired me anyway. They suck. So night goes on, and eventually the power does finally come back on at night. But it was a pretty, it was just of course. Like, of course we got fucked on this. It's the same thing that happened to me and Jeff when we went to see Cabin Fever, another movie that we were so stoked about. Last 25 minutes of the movie, the scene where Ryder Strong is stabbing the guy with the stick, spears him in the back. The reel jumped once, twice, three times, and snapped. The reel, the actual film in the projector snapped as we were watching it. So they had to give us a free ticket. We had to come back the next day. So eventually we did get in to see Freddy vs. Jason. It was the next day or the day after. We did make it and completely fucking loved it. It was everything we wanted it to be. It was violent and gory and crazy. So let's, now that I've, I've had my emotional discussion about my history with this film, let's get in and talk about the film itself. Because... As I said, you have two very complex mythologies that you have to deal with here. How do you bring them together? And I think for the most part, they went about it in a very inspired way. So how we start off the story here is that the residents of Springwood, where Freddie's been operating out of, they've basically treated him like a disease. And they have quarantined anybody that's been affected by him. So they've effectively erased him from the town. Any kid that had a family member die or knew his name, anything like that, they grabbed all these kids up off the street, rounded them up, and stuck them in a mental institution and kept them doped to the gills with hypnosil, the dream-suppressing drug from Part 3, 
makes a nice return here. That's really interesting that they'd go about it that way because for so long in both of these franchises, adults have always been very removed. You, you have to push adults back when you're dealing with teens in peril. Otherwise, the adults will come in and resolve the situation. This indifference of the adults is actually also very central to A Nightmare on Elm Street because it was their decisions. It's what they did by burning Freddy alive in his boiler room that actually brought about all this destruction and chaos. It was Freddy's revenge against the parents of Elm Street that caused all this death and mayhem. So here the adults tried to help, but in typical fashion, they go way too far and end up destroying all these kids' lives as effectively as Freddy would. But I love the idea of wiping him out. Because you have to take him out of the equation somehow. You have to get a new group of kids that would know nothing about Freddy. And this works. The idea that Freddy, just his name could give him power again. And how fast he can spread through these group of kids. Kind of like this early viral marketing. Which is, I like that. I thought that was a really interesting way to go about it. So what does Freddy have to do? He has to get people scared again. He has to get people thinking about death, murder, and mayhem. And if you think about murder and mayhem in Springwood, obviously the name Freddy Krueger would come to people's lips. So he resurrects Jason, searches the bowels of hell, as he says, resurrects him, and tricks him into going to Springwood to start hacking and slashing people up. And that's exactly what happens. They start blaming it on Freddy. People start hearing the name. Kids start hearing the name. Boom. Freddy's able to dream himself up again and start going on a rampage. That brings us to the kids. But I guess before we get to the kids, should talk a little bit more about how this film kicked off. Because the opening of the film has to do a lot of work and do it very quickly to get us up to speed and ready to go. So we're not spending half an hour trying to slowly explain to everybody what these two mythologies are. Ideally, if you're coming to Freddy vs. Jason, you know something about it. So they do two things or a few things really well here. First off, we actually get to see Robert England out of his makeup as just Fred Krueger, the Springwood slasher. Those scenes are great. They really make me long for the aborted Elm Street prequel that John McNaughton was apparently attached to. How far that ever got beyond just like convention table questions, I guess we'll never really know. But to see England just smoking a cigarette and licking the back of picture and sticking it into his photo album, his, his trophy book, it was so creepy. And the little girlings burning dolls. It's just wonderful. Then he kind of explains a little bit of his backstory. And then we jump to Jason, you know, tits on the dock, girl swimming alone in the dark, can't find her boyfriend, running through the woods, Jason sticks her. So we actually get two little mini movies right off the top. We get a little Nightmare on Elm Street movies to reset the tone for everybody about what Freddy is. And then we get a little Nightmare or Friday the 13th movie to remind people how Jason operates. That's really great. It's kind of like a good action opening to a Bond movie where it resets everybody in the universe and then we kick off to, to the movie itself. Introducing us to batch of new kids because you've got to have new kids. It's a Nightmare on Elm Street and a Friday the 13th. You've got to have some kids for these people to terrorize. And for the most part... These kids are all very likable. Uh, Monica Kina, our new final girl, I have to say I had a huge crush on Monica Kina when, when I was a young man. Uh, Kelly Rowland, who is one of, the, one of Destiny's Child, a, a better actress, I think, than Beyonce ever was. She's great. We also get Catherine Isabel, Canada's own, Ginger herself from Ginger Snaps, playing very against type for her as kind of the, the drunken sex-craved person, a role she wasn't happy with, and I don't think ever really repeated a role like this. But those scenes are fun because this movie is so delightfully early 2000s. For anyone that was a teenager around that time, which I was, this is one of the movies where my high school, at least the look 
of my high school experience feels the most represented. Even the one kid wearing the the blue sweater with the stripe across the chest. Oh my god. The girls all wearing the the low rise hip hugger jeans. Uh, It's just watching it again now. It always makes me nostalgic because it's they nailed that stuff right away. It becomes a nice time capsule for the period, which is one of the fun parts about going back and watching the Friday the 13th movies and the Nightmare on Elm Street movies is you get to see kind of the fashion and the sensibilities of the era change in each of the movies. They're not trying to stay locked in to one specific period set in time. So that's a nice, fun little moment there. And like I said, everyone's likable to a point. They're tropes, really. Monica Keena's character, Lori, is the quintessential good girl, the virginal heroine. We have the, you know, unfortunately, slutty girl, to use an outdated term, the one that sleeps around, so obviously she has to die. You know, then we have the sympathetic, you know, <laughs> racial minority friend, which I'm sorry, those pop up in these movies. It's just was a trope of the time. We're better at it now, or we should be better at it now. And then we have a good assortment of nerds and stoners and douchebags. And right off the hop, we get into some great kills. The the tray bed death is so fucking hilarious. People were cheering in the theaters because this guy is douche. He is, you know, me too, patient zero, everything, Captain Red Flag, everything that this character could say wrong, he said wrong. He's violent and aggressive and vindictive and sexually abusive, all these horrible things. So what does Jason do? He literally fucks him with his machete. We see it pounding in and out through the mattress and then breaks him up backwards, takes the bed and folds it in half, snaps him, bent backwards and broken, as Cannibal Corpse would say, which is a nice callback to part six uh, when Jason breaks the sheriff in half. Classic death, classic way to go about it. It kind of lets us know that this movie is going to be bigger and it just starts to escalate from there. Really, the corn rave scene, the rave in the cornfield, I think, is where we really know that this movie is going to be a lot bigger than its predecessors. We knew going into it, fans knew that it's a bigger budget, bigger setting, bigger scale all around. But here, we get to see Jason on fire, walking through the corn maze. And then, he's not just on fire, he starts hacking people up while he's on fire. That's awesome. Like... That's There's so many great moments in this film that you just love to come back to because it's not an overly, it's not a scary film in any way. It doesn't have the, the power to kind of make people jump like the old franchise, some of the better entries in the old franchise did. But this time it's going for, I think, a more over-the-top wild approach. And I think a lot of that comes from obviously stuff that's in the script, but Ronnie Yu, where he wanted to make this a spectacle. This needs to be everything that fans wanted it to be, which means over the top, violent, you know, marquee name and lights. It's a big show. And that's what he delivers at every turn. We really have to deal with the issue, because we've t- I talked about before, this presentation of Freddy as we knew him and Jason as we know him. And I think with Freddy, he's the most successful part of this film. And I've said it before, uh, just talking to friends, that Freddy versus Jason, uh, with, uh, and again, I love this movie, but it's a very successful A Nightmare on Elm Street movie, but I don't think it's a very successful Friday the 13th movie. Because with Freddy, they wisely returned him to his more vicious roots. Kind of how he played the characters in, say, like, part one and three, uh, two to a certain extent. He's violent and awful. And the things he says and does, he's really out to terrorize again. He's not out to put on a show so much like he was in some of the later sequels and those shows are great i love parts three four and five those are my favorite nightmare movies and that's the kind of the spectacle era the the big effects and the wild dreams and the craziness and freddie with more of his humor here 
there's some humor, but it's really dialed back and replaced with a sense of, like I said, of violence and maliciousness. They they even bring back some of this overtone of him being a child molester, that he's not just killing these kids, that he is sexually assaulting them. And that's something that was way toned down in the original franchise, uh, in the original six entries. So it's nice to see that make a return here, not in the idea that what he's doing is okay or anything, but it's just a good return to form for the character so he can bring all of his character to bear on this new group of kids. You know, I think it's that idea is perfectly personified or exemplified in the scene towards the end where he's got Monica Kina trapped in the dream and he starts going up her nightgown with his claws. And he's like, sorry, princess, the first time tends to get a little messy. It's like, holy shit, they are not bearing the lead on this. We are meant to assume that Freddy's going right up Main Street with his claws. And that's fucking horrific. It's horrible. For Jason... This is a different story. I I can only think so much about how different it would have been with Kane. I don't know if he would have been able to preserve more of Jason's inherent violence that he brought to the character. That kind of great white shark just eating everything in his path. But here, Jason is played not necessarily sympathetic, because he has the bulk of the kills in this movie. Actually, he has all of them. Jason has 16 kills in this movie, and Freddy has one, which I think that, that to me, that sucked. I love the idea that Jason stole his kills, but it still would have been nice if we got to see a little more of Freddy actually doing some Dream Demon stuff, because we don't get a ton of that, but what we do get is still great. But... Jason is played as a bit more of a kind of a sympathetic Frankenstein character here. He doesn't get a lot of bursts of speed or physical violence. He gets some good hacking and slashing, but that's really what it amounts to. For a lot of the movie, he's moving very slowly. Again, like I said, kind of this Frankenstein lumber. And the kids kind of band together and get him and... He's not on their side in any way, but their idea is, well, we can use Jason to fight Freddy. We'll bring Freddy into the real world, and Jason will fight him. And they're trying to keep him alive when Freddy's messing with him in the dream. It's, I get it. You've got to try something. I think it's more of the easy road for them to have taken instead of trying to dig down harder and find a more creative solution, it, it it's fine. That's really what it comes down to. It's fine. Considering how impossibly hard this film was to develop, if you have to cut some corners, cool. Would it have been nice if they didn't? If they had have spent longer and been more confident in some more grim, serious, outlandish ideas? Sure. But... I'll take a Freddy vs. Jason that has some corners cut off of it rather than having no Freddy vs. Jason. This does lead to some kind of goober moments. We're left with that because there's been talk about rewrites that happened on the film. Famously, David Goyer came in at kind of the 11th hour and rewrote a lot of stuff. Now, Shannon and Swift still have final screenplay credit, but they've even said that a lot of their dialogue was changed a lot of the structure of the script was changed and it took away some of the more angry, some of the more malicious aspects of the film. And that's, that's unfortunate, but I think it still does work, but it does lead to some of the more controversial elements in the film, namely the, the water stuff with Jason and probably the biggest goober moment in the film, which those writers have talked about. They hated that. They did not write where Monica Keena character said, Freddie died by fire, Jason by water. How do we use that? Uh, that's dumb, but let's talk about the most controversial stuff in the film. And that's the Jason being supposedly afraid of water. So what we're here to see is these two characters duke it out and we get to see them duke it out in the dream and we get to see them duke it out in the real world, which is great. We get to see them both fight on their own turf. So Jason has been doped up 
and apparently when he's doped, he's fallen asleep. Whatever. So he ends up in the dream, and Freddy is just beating the living shit out of him, pinballing him around the room, stabbing him, smashing him, dropping stuff on him, and that great line, why won't you die? And eventually this fight progresses, and Jason hits a water pipe in the boiler room, and water starts to fall down. And he pauses, and he's concerned. And then Freddy rains water down on him, and then we have the line to piss so many fans off, so there is something you're afraid of. There's some dumb moments in this film that I, will, I won't defend, even though I'll still gladly eat them up. Here's my thoughts on the most contentious moment. Jason obviously isn't afraid of water. We've seen him in the water on many occasions. He swam to New York, okay? He was trapped underwater at the end of 6 and 7. He's swam, been under the water to get to people to kill them in lakes. We've seen it. Jason is asleep at this point. He's in a dream. And as kind of this undead killer, you know, mongoloid psychopath, there's nothing he's really afraid of. What was the last thing Jason remembers being afraid of? It would be when he almost drowned. So that would be the only fear memory he would ever have. So it makes complete sense to me that, well, if he was to actually dream, if he was going to have a nightmare, it would be about drowning. That's fine. I think what fucked people up on this and what got everybody, you know, pre-internet butthurt about it was the idea of how it was presented. It was presented in a bit of a magoo manner. But to me, it worked completely fine. I don't, other than that one dumb throwaway line, I don't think the presentation of it was bad. I think it was actually quite great when you see Jason start to freak out. We've never seen this side of the character before. And then we see him revert back to his his childhood form, to the kind of the Ari the Ari Verman Lerman? Ari Lerman? Yeah, Ari. The kid from the first Jason, the very first Jason, Friday the thirteenth, part one. And that great scene of Freddy sticking his claw into his head. Like that that's what I'm talking about with the malicious Freddy this time around. Then that brings us into the concept from Friday the 3rd, or Nightmare on Elm Street Part 1 and 6, where if you are holding on to Freddy when you wake up, you can drag him into the real world with you. And that's where we get set up here for the end of the film and the fight at Crystal Lake. Now, is Springwood anywhere near Crystal Lake, New Jersey? Nope. So you obviously couldn't drive there in two hours, but whatever. You, we, you, you fudge geography. For a situation like this. These things, I don't care about, really. In, in the scope of things, if you're still bothered by that, by the time you get to the end of the movie, the movie doesn't have you anyway. So it really doesn't matter if they had gone out of their way to, to get the geography correct. But then also, do we have the kids driving for like seven, eight hours to get where they're going? Not very compact storytelling. So I'm personally fine with that. The final fight is great. There's a little too much kind of WWF pounding on each other, and that was Ronnie Yu's contribution to it. But the final fight between them is loaded with so many great moments. I watched the movie with my nephew, with Logan for prep, and he was just hooting and hollering when Jason picks Freddy up and starts smashing him through the windows of the cabin. Logan's like, oh, he's done. Oh, he's kicked his ass. And then when Freddy comes back on him and sticking him and stabbing him, you know, there were a couple times where even Logan said, I, when did Freddy learn to start kicking people in the face and throwing all these wrestling moves? But even he got over it pretty quick once he starts launching the fuel tanks at him and dropping the rebar on him. I like that Jason's bleeding in this because it makes sense. He's got a resurrected body, so he'd have a fresh round of blood in him. I, I like that, the very kind of Hong Kong kung fu exaggerated blood sprays. That works for me. Doesn't bother me at all. Because do we want a really grim, serious, violent fight between the two of them? No, we want it to be outlandish and over the top and, and a little inherently silly. 
but without mocking the characters and its silliness. And I think it it preserves them pretty well. And by the end of it, they are they are just hacking the crap out of each other, slicing each other's chest. Jason gets his fingers cut off. Freddy claws him in the eye with his claws, and it's just it's a brutal, ugly, nasty fight. They get blown up. It's just great, and then Jason stabs Freddy with his own fucking arm. Like, it's just break your arm off and beat you to death with the wet end style hilarity. Just awesome, and then Monica Keene gets to have her final girl moment and chops his head off. Perfect. It's great. There's, again, I know I'm just kind of bouncing between scenes here, but you don't really need a thematic, in-depth review of this film. It's it's a music video. It's it's a rock concert. You know, you're there to see, you know, the songs you know, the jams. You're there to see everybody just kick that riff and just start banging that head. And that's what they do so wonderfully here. And then we get our nice guess ending. Because obviously, Freddy fans want Freddy to win. Jason fans want Jason to win. So you have to have some kind of a way to satisfy both camps without making it feel like a put-off, you know, like you just avoided answering the question. So we get that apocalypse now rise out of the water with Freddy carrying, or Jason carrying Freddy's head, and then Freddy's head winks at the camera and laughs. Are they at Crystal Lake? Maybe. Are they in Freddy's dream? Maybe. Are they in hell? Maybe. We don't know. It would have been great if they could have got the rights to do one of the original endings the writers wanted, where they both wake up in hell and they're in kind of an arena. You see the tall man's phantasm sphere whip around them and they see each other and they run back to the fight and then chains on hooks come down and pull them apart and Pinhead walks out and says, gentlemen, what seems to be the problem? That would have been great, but obviously New Line didn't have the rights to all those characters, so that was never going to happen. But... It's just a romp. Left open for a sequel that unfortunately we never got. It's I, I understand why it didn't happen. It it did come close-ish at one point with the idea of Freddy versus Jason versus Ash. Because if you're gonna definitively kill these characters, who better to kill them than a hero? And who's the biggest hero in horror? Ash. But again, it came down to, you know, the Raimi Evil Dead camp wanted to do it their way. New Line wanted to do it their way, and part of company. So we're left with just the one film. Now, there is a graphic novel adaptation of the script of Freddy vs. Jason vs. Ash. I've not read it. I've heard uh, both sides of the review, that it's just kind of a good thing we didn't get that movie, to it's fucking awesome and it's a total shame we didn't get the movie. But we'll never know, because unfortunately we're sure as hell aren't going to get a Freddy vs. Jason 2 at this point, even though... That would be awesome. But it's an absolute romp of a film. It's pretty much everything you think it is. If you go in with a fun, open mind to it, you're going to have a great time. The other thing I want to talk about with the film before we wrap out here is the music. It's It's got a fine score. We get a nice blending of the Nightmare on Elm Street and Friday the 13th themes and motifs. But I remember sitting in the theater, uh, again, me and my friend Jeff, and the movie ends, and How Can I Live by El Nino kicks in. And the two of us are like, what the fuck is this? This is sweet. We'd never really heard El Nino before. And then that song ends, and like the most brutal part of Army of Me by Chimera comes on. And we're like, what is this? This is sweet, dude. And then that ends, and When Darkness Falls by Killswitch Engage comes on. Just these three hard-hitting tunes, one right after another. And we're just as blown away by this music as we were by the movie. Because at this point, we were both still kind of firmly new metal kids. Like We were listening to Slipknot, but we weren't really listening to anything like super crushingly heavy yet. Like We were listening to In Flames, but that's about as heavy as we got. We hadn't started listening to bands like Chimera or Killswitch Engage or even El Nino, which isn't super heavy, but still amazing. So I went immediately across the street, left the theater, went into Peterborough Square when it still had a music world and bought the Freddy vs. Jason soundtrack. And that album completely changed my life. There are so many bands on that album that became my favorite bands. 
El Nino was hugely important to me. Their second record, Confessions, was, oh my God, that record got me through some absolutely bleak times in my life. Like I said, Chimera, Kill Switch Engage, In Flames is on there, Stone Sour has a song on there, Murder Dolls, um, Lamb of God has a song on there, uh, Nonpoint, just the Seether, the list goes on and on. Hatebreed has a song. So many, I basically, half the bands on that album became some of my favorite bands. And I spent the next, that entire summer and my year off before college just devouring all those bands. So from development to the movie to the soundtrack, everything, this movie was seminal for me. It's why I can ignore some of the problems. It's why I, I've lamented this on the show before and I will continue to lament it. The idea of this kind of instant access that kids now have or people now have to, to media where you don't have to build anything anymore because my love of Freddy vs. Jason, as I'm sure you've got by this point, isn't just the movie. It's the entire experience tied into it. It's waiting for the movie. It's going to buy the magazines and reading about it. It's going and buying the soundtrack. It's waiting for it to come out on DVD to see it again, because we went back a couple times and saw it in theaters. But then you had to wait seven, eight months for it to come out. And then talking about it and re-watching it and reading interviews and wanting snippets. And I, when I met Kane Hodder the following uh, September at, or August at Festival of Fear, I even told him when he was signing my Jason X, I, was, I would never say this now, but I was such a goober. I was like, dude, you got fucked on Freddy vs. Jason and that sucks. He kind of looks up at me, he's like, I thought so too, man. I'm like, ah, oh, it's embarrassing as hell now, but it's such a, a young person thing to say. But all of that builds a completely fleshed out experience that I had with the film. Not just the movie itself, but everything that went with it. And that's, I think, important because that's what builds cult. That's what builds appreciation. That's why I hate when a brand new movie comes out and people are like, oh, it's an instant cult classic. Nope, can't be. It doesn't work that way. It could be an underground hit. It could be an absolutely fantastic movie, but cult has to happen over time. And the more tertiary things you have to do to participate with the movie, especially when you're participating with other people about it and participating in an analog sense, you build cult because then you have stuff that you're not just talking about the movie. You have experiences that you're sharing with people. I, me and Jeff have our story about the blackout. We have our story about going and getting the record other people and getting, buying the magazine and all this stuff and other fans of the movie. They have similar stories. They have shared experiences that we can have together. And it's that building away from the nucleus that is the movie, that becomes the center of the cult. And then we all bring our experiences to it. And I think without that kind of holistic approach to a film that the community takes, I think that can greatly impact whether we can even have the idea anymore of true cult classics. That term will never go away. It's a marketable term now. But I think it's a shame that a lot of that, you know, boots on the ground approach to experiencing a film and all of the things that come with it and physically interacting, holding these things is is lost. And I think that's so integral to films like this, because I think if you just release this film now, people will be like, oh, yeah, that's cute. You know, Freddie Jason, they're doing stuff, but then they just walk away. Then it's done. It's not like, you know, a 10 and 11 year old or 12 year old kid going and asking an older sibling to get them the movie or they go to a convenience store or a video store where they don't care about renting the kids and they get it and they've been hearing about it and reading about it. That is all so important and is probably not the last word that you're going to hear from me on this subject. But excellent movie. Cannot recommend it enough. Still one of my favorites in both franchises to this day. Moving on to Deep Space Nine, because again, I'm going to try and get you guys out of here in a reasonable amount of time. Episode 11, The Vortex, aired April 18th, 1993. A man named Corden tells Odo he can take him to a place where aliens, much like Odo himself, Odo himself exist. 
which would help Odo find out where he truly comes from. Okay. This is a great episode. Flat out. Hands down. Absolutely great episode. So we're, again, we're two for two after the great Negus episode last week. This one has a few firsts for the series in it. It is the first time that Odo is referred to as a changeling. That's something that will be carried through his whole story as he and his people become much more central to the ongoing narrative of Deep Space Nine. It's also the first time that Morn is called by his name. That's the the bald, brown, kind of uh, California raisin-looking guy that's always sitting at Cork's bar and never talking, uh, which is an anagram for Norm from Cheers, because Norm was always at the bar, so Morn should be at the bar as well. And they joke about him being a big mouth, that he never shuts up, even though over the course of the entire series, we never actually hear Morn say a word. He originally had a line in early episodes, but it was cut due to time, and then it just became a long go- an ongoing joke throughout the series. And it's it's one of those things that the 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 um, serialized nature of DS9 rewards because by I think season six we get an entire episode dedicated to Morn because the ongoing fans, the hardcore fans, everyone loved him by this point. He doesn't ever do much, but to see him pop up, you're like, yes, Morn. Always fun to see him. The idea of the uh, the Miradorns the twin aliens that are in this episode. I think it's fascinating. I think it's just good classic sci-fi ideas. The conceit that these two aliens are not actually, these twins aren't two people, but they're two halves of one person. It's a shame that they never brought that back because I think there's a lot of storytelling possibilities with characters like that, with a species like that. I don't know if it was dealt with in the books or if Enterprise dealt with it because I gave up on that after one season. Maybe the new series will bring it back. Who knows? Really interesting idea, though. This is an Odo-centric episode, and Odo-centric episodes are always, well, for the most part, they're always fantastic. I guess that's a double negative there. It doesn't actually work. Generally, they're always fantastic. Hmm. I still don't think that works, but whatever. I'm going with it. It's my show. And we start to dive into his origins, because Odo is, he's very much a man alone. He doesn't know his past, he doesn't know where he's from, he was found floating near Bajor and ended up in a lab. That's all he knows. He has no memory of his people or where he's from, who the changelings are. So it's fun to see some of that explored here, because it really opens up the character of Odo. We see some real vulnerability here because this is a really big point of contention with him where he has absolutely no idea where he's from or who his people are. He is truly alone. He's surrounded by dozens, if not hundreds of different species on a daily basis, but he is the only one of him in amongst this myriad, this melting pot that is Deep Space Nine. And the episode doesn't end with any definitive answers, which is great. That's one of the great things that Deep Space Nine does. It doesn't wrap things up in a nice, neat bow because we're not moving on to the next planet and the next storyline each week. We get a good, slow build to Odo's people. We're not going to get a full reveal as to who they are until, I believe, the start of Season 3. We don't get a real explanation as to who they are and their importance in the ongoing DS9 narratives. So that's great. The other thing that this really deals with is, I said, this vulnerability of Odo. Because Odo's entire existence, because he is alone, is based around his work, his sense of duty, his sense of justice. And here we get to see for the first time that this sense of justice, this sense of right and wrong that he has, isn't just locked into the rule of law, what's written on paper, and whoever is writing that paper at the time. He doesn't just shift his morality, whether it's the Cardassians or the Federation or the Bajorans that's involved. He has a very innate sense of justice built into him. This idea that, you know, humans that we we do know were born with the ability to determine right from wrong. That's uh, a hard concept. I can't say yes or no. Nature, nurture, all that kind of stuff. But here we get to see that really applied to him for the first time. Because he he breaks the law. He gives this man up. This prisoner that he's transporting back to his planet, 
his planet wants him. They have demanded his his return. And Odo is is a, a officer of the law. This man is in his custody, and Odo realizes that real justice, the real right thing to do, is to let this man and his daughter go. It's a great side to Odo's character, and it's not a softening. He doesn't suddenly become kind of a more jovial, jolly dude, but it is an expansion of the character. Because we're on a great, with all of the the main cast of DS9, even the side characters, we're on this great slow build. Some people call it an arc that we don't get a lot because they're really fucking hard to do well. But these are just, we're getting the very beginnings of the building blocks of these characters' arcs. Because that's what it takes. You have to lay a good solid groundwork for everybody, especially if you're going to sh- make these arcs connect all together in the seventh season. You have to have a really strong foundation. So for Odo, this is just another, this episode is a great, you know, cornerstone and his building block as a character. The Vortex, excellent Deep Space Nine episode. So for books, I read, this is actually a few weeks ago, because again, I'm way ahead on my numbers. I'm, I'm, almost double of where I expected to be at this point. Uh, but I'm going to talk about, because we talked about horror this week, I read Richard Matheson's Hell House from 1971. Now, horror fans, we know Richard Matheson. He was a prolific screenwriter, prolific author. Uh, I Am Legend, probably his most famous book outside of Hell House. Incredible Shrinking Man, Stir of Echoes, etc. He wrote Trilogy of Terror, Twilight Zone episodes, tons of stuff. I have read... I Am Legend. It's the only literary experience I'd had with Richard Matheson at this point. So I just kind of grabbed this one on a blind buy. And great book. I was very pleasantly surprised. Because I Am Legend, his first book, I think was written in 54. This was written in 71. So I wasn't sure what to expect. Whether he was going to kind of stick with that kind of classic horror pulpy style. Or whether it was going to evolve. And you can see a writer that has grown hugely, not just in his literary skill, but his confidence in what kind of stories he can tell. Here we get a neat blend between classic turn-of-the-century paranormal tropes, kind of like transmediums, ectoplasmic projections, mixed with much more of a grim, violent kind of 70s ideas. The the hell house itself that is, is sucked in all this horrible energy that the owner, uh, Emmerich Belasco had created by kind of turning it into this cesspool of perversion and degradation, kind of this modern day Marquis de Sade kind of a thing that he was living there and just letting these people that he brought together as acolytes kind of feed upon themselves. That's great. Those few handful of descriptions we get of what the house was like at its peak of degradation are just brutal and disgusting, but also very enticing to read because they're such graphic, wild images. I I can't imagine that someone like Clyde Barker wasn't hugely influenced by this book because it there's a story in the volume four of uh, sorry books of blood brain freeze that. I talked about before where was a guy who had built a house to summon the devil and turns it into a, a den of sin. And it reminded me a lot of this. The novel spends a good amount of its runtime kind of dancing the edge of whether there are actual ghosts in the house fucking with people or whether their concept of this house being so haunted and its history and mythology that it is resulting in them kind of manifesting these delusions that everything they think is happening to them isn't actually happening to them, which is a fun balance to strike. He, he doesn't carry it on too long. He, it, you know, he falls on the side that there actually is ghosts, but he goes out of his way to apply a very modern sense of science to the whole thing. It's slippery science, but it's still science because we're, you know, right at the start, we're seeing ectoplasmic projections coming out of people and mediums transferring voices and stuff. 
like it, the main character explaining the the mediums and the voices and stuff away fine. I was a little surprised that he was going so Victorian with the with the ectoplasm and it manifesting as people. But he even explains that it's actually it's not some kind of foreign substance. It's actually the body physically using, you know, what we make our fingernails and hair out of and stuff and skin cells to manifest this stuff. I thought that was cool. That was an interesting novel approach to it because it melds this these classic Victorian tropes that we know and mixes it with a much more grounded 70s sense or 60s modern, I guess, sense to horror. But we have to bring some kind of real world explanation to these things and strikes that balance very well, allows it to straddle this line between classic and contemporary. And it reads like that. It's a classic ghost story injected heavily with modern ideas. Great read. Cannot recommend this one enough. Recommendations time. So staying on message of uh, Monster Rumbles, of the uh, the beasts from the East and West getting up and having a uh, slugfest, Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. Great movie. Sure, they don't really fight it until like the last couple of minutes of the movie, but I'll watch anything with Lon Chaney Jr. where he's playing the Wolfman because he's always fantastic in that role. And King Kong versus Godzilla. This movie is slow as shit, but when Kong and Godzilla finally fight, it's hilarious. The Kong suit is ridiculous. Godzilla looks at one of his worst suits in this movie, but can't it you can't beat it. It's just good stuff. Honestly, you might even just want to skip to the fight at the end. You're not missing much in between. It's just a lot of talking. For a book, going from one classic revisionist haunted house story to another, Stephen King's The Shining. I Love this book. Outside of the Dark Tower, it's probably in my top three or probably top five Stephen King books. I've read it three times, maybe four times, and it's just as good every time I read it. It is not the movie. It is not the King the miniseries. It is its own animal, and it is a near-perfect novel. As King's a discovery writer, he doesn't generally know where what his ending's going to be. He just has his characters, because he's always said, I don't trust plot, I trust story. So it's always, in a lot of cases with him, a bit of a Hail Mary pass. He spends the first chunks of his book putting a huge amount of ideas up into the air, and then he has to try and get every character where he needs them to be so they can make the catch at the end of the game. And sometimes they catch the ball, but then drop it. Sometimes they completely miss the ball, but here... It is just a slam dunk. It is incredible from start to back. It is a genuinely scary read. It's genuinely moving, heartbreaking, funny. It is an absolutely excellent book. Cannot recommend The Shining enough. Next week. Next week's up in the air a little bit right now. Uh, either, either, I'm going to have a guest on and talk about uh, a utter trash classic, which I will not name here just in case it doesn't happen if that guest appearance doesn't line up with next week but it might then come later of another episode if not episode 12 will be going from the first round of uh, recommendations that i've made first time i'm pulling from my recommendations list and we'll be looking at the western classic modern western classic tombstone kurt russell val kilmer and every other dude in hollywood is in this movie you heard me gush about it during the searchers episode if this one comes next week, it'll be a full gush fest. If everything lines up the way I want it, this will actually come the following week and take us out of March that way. But I want to thank you guys very much for joining me for episode 11. You can find me on Facebook at the Steal My Name Cast. You can find me on SoundCloud at the Steal My Name Podcast. Uh, like, subscribe, share, force your friends uh, to, to listen to this. I don't know, sit on them. Uh, nail their house shut. I don't know. We're all going into quarantine here soon, so you'll have plenty of time to catch up on these episodes. So once again, thank you very much for listening, and until next time, remember to steal someone else's name, because this one is already taken.